the lesson today is certainly not very complex and it's not meant to be. For one thing, I couldn't write it if it were complex, much less give it. But on the other hand, I don't, that really isn't my purpose. There's a lot of ways that we could go with this subject of do all in the name of the Lord. In fact, I should have told Joel to lead the song we have, do all in the name of the Lord, but I didn't do that. So that's my fault. But there's an old song in our songbook called that. And I, and growing up, I've heard this, this phrase used quite a bit and and it was used properly in the sense and we'll read in just a moment that all of us should do whatever we do according to the to God's will. Yeah. I want to apply it though in more of a specific context this morning with you. But right now let's turn over to the passage here in the book of Colossians in chapter 3. And we're going to stay in this passage for the most part today. So read it with me. You can keep it open if you have it. But in, in the conclusion of a previous section, in the beginning of another section, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, other places he would say, let Christ dwell in you. And I don't think there's a distinction from where we're sitting of Christ dwelling in us and, and the word of God, Christ dwelling in us. Because that's how Christ dwells in us through his word. And that's how certainly how he influences our actions. Through his word, we're not like puppets that he's going to pull some strings and make us do certain things. So his words are what have power over those who are in Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, we often use that passage to talk about the fact that we don't use instrumental music, according to the New Testament, we, we sing from our hearts. That's the instrument that we play on, as it were. Uh, and that's the way that the actual grammar in this passage is. But that that involves the word of Christ dwelling in us, richly, in us richly. We teach and admonish, and we do that one way as psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then he broadens out into a big phrase. And he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I think he probably is saying in the context, one thing he's saying is that even if it's not a specifically an act of worship that you're doing, you do all in the name of the Lord. I think the word, when he says do all here, it's in contrast to us thinking that specifically he has one thing in mind. It's a broader idea of doing all in the name of the Lord. Everything about it. And so uh, preachers are rightfully emphasize, and we try to hear so often that every aspect of our life must be under the control of the word of God and Jesus Christ through his word. Every aspect of our life. Church, being a Christian is not about church entirely. By that I mean in this public assembly. It's about all of our lives. And that's the challenge for each one of us. That wherever we go about our business, whatever we say, whatever our hand finds to do, whatever we come in contact, that we think first through the filter of what is good and right and proper and beneficial for me to do according to the will of God. Now, now people in the world don't think like that, of course. That's why they're still in the world. They are controlled by their emotions, their thoughts, their prejudices. They're controlled by, you know, passions like greed, lust, whatever it may be. They're simply acting the way that they want to act. That, that's what it means, you know, you do you. That's what you do you means. 
It means you do whatever you want to do at that moment. Don't let anybody else tell you that's wrong. Well, the Bible says that's not wrong because he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and whatever you do in word, you do all in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord here is not some special incantation that we say before we do something. I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. No, it means by the authority of the Lord, by under his authority or by his permission, we do what we do. So to, to do something in the name of the Lord means we do it with Christ's authority or designation. So whatever acts you are doing, you do it in the name of the Lord. Now, well, how do you cook your supper in the name of the Lord? Well, okay, you, you do it for the right people, for the right reason, because it's your responsibility or your privilege, and you give thanks and all things to him when you do this. And so that's how you do that. And whatever else you do, you do it in the name of the Lord. This is a crazy example. The other day, I'm coming, most of my examples are, but bear with me for a moment. The other day, I'm coming home from somewhere on Port St. Lucie Boulevard. You know, a lot of good stories have started out with, I was on Port St. Lucie Boulevard one day. You know, you can start a lot of stories that way. We're all driving 45 or 15, three lanes of traffic coming from the turnpike area across the Boulevard, Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock. You picture this. High to the tourist season. Some guy comes out of the street in front of me, whips across all three. I'm in the middle lane. Whips across all three lanes of traffic, gets in this lane. I had to slow down a little bit for him to do that. And I'm like, what in the world's wrong with you? That's what I'm thinking. I did that in the name of the Lord. What in the world's wrong with you? That's what I thought. Okay. I wondered. He, he was a young guy, pretty daring. Well, I hadn't gone 100 feet probably. And another car comes out the side street, a Subaru, pulls right out, and I'm thinking, surely they're going to go in the right lane. Nope, they get right in the center lane and basically sit there. Bang! That was me, hitting them. Okay? In Judy's nice car that she loves. There's no way in the world I could avoid that. Because if I went left or right, I had no, no way to do that. I just had to bang into them. And in the name of the Lord, I did not curse and swear. I'm serious about this now. I tried to figure out whether I was going to... And I almost got hit from behind. And the guy stood on his car on end and not hit me from behind. Got my flashers on. Got out of the car. See if the people were okay in the car ahead of me. It's two people I could see. And the woman gets out of the other car in front of me. And she's on the passenger side. And she is begging my forgiveness. Her daughter's driving, the new driver, etc., etc. I'm thinking, in the name of the Lord, why are you letting your new daughter drive on Fourth Street Boulevard? Anyway, no, I, she starts. Uh, no, I, I mean she starts begging my forgiveness, and I'm saying, it's okay. Are you hurt? No. Is she hurt? Is everybody okay? Yeah, we're all okay. I said, well then, let's be grateful for that. I'm not upset. Get in your car, drive into that parking lot out this road, okay, so we can get off of here, and then we'll talk. Okay. So we did. We talked about, you know, and I told him, I'm not mad at you. These things happen. I lean in the car. You okay? And she's over there bawling and crying, this young girl with blue hair, you know, bawling and crying. I said, are you okay? Yeah. I said, it's okay. Are you? If you're not hurt, I'm not hurt. Everything's fine. This will all be fine. In a month, you'll never remember this happened. We can fix cars. Our mother and her are looking at me. Until we get off the road, 
course, Mr. Nice Guy calls the cops <laughs> in the name of the Lord. <laughs> no, I did. I called the. I didn't call the ambulance. I called the police. They sent somebody over to take all the information, all the other stuff. Now there, I kept trying to assure these folks because that it was all going to be fine. We weren't going to hate each other. I wasn't going to cuss them out. We weren't going to get into a fist fight. Now, why didn't I get into a fist fight and cuss these people out? Why? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Simple. Not because I'm a good person, but because that's what this verse says for me to do. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all... And that is not what Jesus Christ would have done in that situation. Get in a fist fight and curse them out. Would he? Can you picture that? Is that how this kind of thing usually happens? I think the reason she got out of the car because she thought that was what might happen and she was trying to prevent some big thing because that's not what usually happens in that situation. It's a fender bender. Go fix, go fix it. Here. <laughs> carry on. And I told her, I've been, I've been on both sides of this. I've been the one that's been at fault and I've been the one that's been hit. And that's kind of how that works. Now, that's a simple thing. But this passage tells us that as a Christian, whatever you do in word or deed, do all the name of the Lord. Now I want to, let me go back because that's not what I, I want to say this first. This has been used by preachers for a long time, and correctly so, but this is not the focus of this sermon, and I know that, so I'm saying this in case you're listening, that I'm aware that I could apply this and say, we should be doing all of our worship here in this building in the name of the Lord, and we tried to do that. Everything you've seen us do here, we can go to the Scriptures, I believe, and show you that's what we're doing and why we're doing, and it's why we're leaving other stuff out. It's not in here because we can't do those things in the name of the Lord. We can do what we find there in the name of the Lord. And we do it in his name for his honor and glory as best we can. It it involves the work of the church here. This church only engages in certain kinds of activities as a work of the church and funds them through our treasury because we can find authority for those things in the name of the Lord to do them in the name of the Lord. Not other stuff that we find no authority for. We don't do those things. They're good things perhaps. Maybe, and maybe you need to do them, but they're not what the Lord says the church ought to do through its treasury. So we don't do those things because we're determined to do only what we can find in the name of the Lord. And that's why we only do those things. Now that's a whole different kind of subject. This church is organized the way it is with elders and deacons, locally men, local men who have no authority except what's over this church in this place, and their authority is to teach and to, and to be examples in the Word and to lead people properly. We're limited to that and including that because that's what we can do in the name of the Lord as far as leadership is concerned. We can't go beyond that because it would not be according to the authority of Christ to go beyond that and for Gary and I to be elders over some other church, some other place. And so we don't do that because we're determined to do all in the name of the Lord. So that's a big subject, and that's one way to apply this passage. But I want to apply it in its own context because I think this has also a critical application that is very often overlooked by well-meaning people sometimes, and it may be, may be unknown to many of you, and I want to show you what this is. So here's the whole passage in its context. Verse 17. I know you probably can't read this. I don't intend for you to read. I know it's small, but I want to put all of it up here. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Bond servants and master. You see how he, he immediately goes to all these relationships and says, now this is what I'm trying to tell you. And I believe that this is not a separate part of the book. It's not some other context. I believe this is the natural outflow of what he's saying in verse 17. This is how Paul applies this principle here in this part of the book. These relationships that are there. And I want you to understand the significance of that. I want you to see the significance right here with your own very own eyes. That when we begin to either downplay or ignore what Paul says what in all these relationships, we are ignoring a part of what he says it means to live in the name of the Lord, to do all in the name of the Lord. The all here includes things like what happens after a traffic accident or what we do in worship. But it also includes what happens in all of these relationships at home. And these are the core and the center of where most of us live, one way or the other. We're either living in these relationships or we will or we have been living in these within these relationships wherever we go. And this is where he's saying, let me give you some specific scriptural instructions about these things. Now, there's other passages that deal with these very same relationships. There's a parallel passage in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 and through the beginning of chapter 6. And it's strange to me how that both these passages throw this structure from one chapter to another. Verse 1 really belongs with chapter 3 of chapter 4, verse 1, belongs with the previous chapter. When you go to Ephesians... Uh, chapter 5, you really should jump down to chapter 6, verse 4 and push that up into one context because it's not really separate. It's all one context. And you see that very same... Well, a nobody like me would call it an error, but it, it is an odd thing to me that the chapter breaks here because it, it causes people to ignore part of it. They stop reading at the end of the chapter instead of seeing it all together. So that's what we're going to talk about briefly this morning. We're not going to spend very long I know you're relieved to hear that, and I want you to feel relieved. I hopefully, hopefully I won't spend very long. Because I have an entire series of lessons that could take 20 weeks to go through these. And that's just the husbands, wives, and children, fathers, you know, much less the, all the others. But, but we're not going to do, obviously not going to do that. But I want you to see what he says. Now, what, what is this? First of all, he says, do all in the name of the Lord. And so you have wives, you have husbands, you have children, you have fathers, and then you have bondservants, and you have masters. I'm going to say that encompasses pretty much all human relationships, and perhaps with the exception of just friends or brothers in Christ, perhaps those. But most human relationships, at least all people, are involved in these relationships, uh, we all are familiar with wives because we usually had a mother or a grandmother or something like that, or we're a wife ourselves, or husbands. We're familiar with fathers, grandfathers, people we know that are husbands, or we are ourselves are a husband. We've all been children. Many of us, a large, a large majority, if not a plurality, have children. Many specific, and this is interesting. He talks to fathers and not mothers which we might come to in a moment. But in every other, especially as Americans, strangely enough, as Americans, in our economic system, 
We are bond servants or masters, and usually some of both in our lives. Uh, understandably, in the context, he was very, when he says bond servants here in this translation, the word there is doulos, which is a name for a slave. There were different kinds of slaves in the Roman Empire and in the Grecian culture. There was the bond servant who was a slave and bound to that master as a life bond. And then there was the indentured servant. There was a servant who was only under hire, as it were, for a specific time, either because of a debt or some other reason, perhaps even a prison sentence. We would call it a prison sentence. The different kinds of slaves. But Paul, but he considered, he talks to bond servants. I think he does that on purpose because I think he's using the most extreme of these relationships to point out to us all of us are servants to somebody. In our economic system, all of us are servants to somebody. And so we have relationship to others that we have to serve. And then sometimes we find ourselves in positions of authority. On one hand, we have a boss above us. On the other hand, we have people below us. Very often that's the case. And so he tells us how to act as if we're ma- as, as masters. And it's interesting. The Bible, people picture, well, in Bible, in the Bible, slavery is not condemned. Well, it is sort of condemned. Not the way we think. But I certainly know this. The Bible does not say that masters and slaves could just act any way they wanted to act. It probably makes people upset, I think, because he gives, he gives regulations to the slaves as well as to the masters, as we'll see in a moment. We would think because of our sympathies that he should leave the slaves alone. After all, all slaves are good people. Just like we think all handicapped people are nice people. We see a person in a wheelchair, oh, they must be a nice person because we feel sorry for them. We have sympathy, feel sorry, so they must be a nice person. Let me assure you as a handicapped person, that isn't true at all. Okay? They have, they need, they need the rebuke of the Holy Spirit as much as the person who can walk around and do jumping jacks. They need God's Spirit too. Same thing is true for servants. You feel sorry for someone who's a slave or a servant. They need God's work too on their heart because they're not all nice and kind people. Slavery can embitter them just like being handicapped and it can embitter you. And so God doesn't leave anybody out of this problem. But let's just go take a look at this. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Is there... This is one of the top two or three statements that is most hated in the New Testament in modern times. This is one one of top two or three. The other one basically being uh, the ones around homosexuality and so forth. It's one of the top two statements. It's hated by the world. That wives should submit to their husbands. And people take a lot of approaches to this. And It says here, as is fitting in the Lord. Um, He says in Ephesians, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto Christ. So the word as defines the kind of submission. But other people, and that's a kind of a modification. He doesn't say submit as if you are a slave to your husband. That isn't the meaning of this passage at all. And I know that from the fact that both here and in Ephesians, he qualifies the submission by as under unto Christ or as is fitting in the Lord. There's a qualification to this submission. But on the other hand, so many Christian, so-called Christian scholars today take these words and make them mean essentially nothing. They take the idea of submission to a husband and make it so that basically it means 
the they don't, the wives can do whatever they want as long as they disagree. You disagree with your husband, then do whatever you want. You're a free person. Why God would never have you obey your husband? He might tell you to do something wrong, and so they just basically dismiss it. There, there are writers like Sheila Gregor, a big popular blog. I used to follow this woman's blog, and, and she's just in the last two or three years completely gone, come off the rails on this issue, off the rails. I don't want to tell you the name of her blog. And other people go with her. She gets a whole crowd of people to go with her. And basically says, uh, you know, if you don't like what your husband's doing, you got to do what you want to do. That's my interpretation of what she's saying. She might deny that, but in essence, that's what it boils down to. This says here, if you're a wife, Submit. The word submit here is a word that means it's a, it's, is a military word. It means to, to rank underneath or to be in order underneath an authority. And so the Roman armies were, had different ranks and everybody respected their rank and they had to stay within their rank in the Roman army. They were in submission to the ones, much like our military and police forces. In fact, almost every business that you've ever been in has this kind of authority in it. And yet, we somehow can understand that just because our boss at work has more authority than we do at work, we don't think it means that he's superior to us as a human being. And yet, when it comes to wives and husbands, that's how it's usually put forward and taught. Well, I'm not inferior to my husband. I'm equal to my husband. Of course you are. Just like you're equal to your boss at work. Slaves were equal to their masters, according to the Bible. But it did mean they didn't have to be in submission to the authority of their master or the military commander or the police sergeant or your boss at work. You're in submission to their authority, even though you're equal as a human being. Now, this is what the Bible actually teaches about this subject. It is a challenge for women. I do not subscribe to the notion I heard preached when I was young that women are more naturally submissive uh, than men. My my first question about that would be, have you met any women? If you think women are more naturally submissive, do you know any women? Because they're not. Are you, are you women naturally more submissive? No, you're... Here we go. You hold your tongue and do whatever you want. You're more indirect about your rebellion. Men are very direct about their rebellion. They just stand up and tell you, I'm not doing it. That's what my sons did. I ain't doing it. Adam would say, I'm not doing it and you can't make me. And he was four years old. Now that's male. Catherine and Susan would just kind of smile and say, I love you, Daddy. They do what they want. Okay? Which is better. Neither. I'd rather have the direct confrontation. Personally. I understand it better because I'm a male, so I understand that direct confrontation a little better. We can deal with that. Women are not more submissive. It is something that they have to do in the name of the Lord. You're not born that way. You do it in the name of the Lord because it's what is right and good and fitting. You 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 agree to marry a man and you come under his authority and you do what is beneficial to both of you, and that is to be in submission. Does this mean that you're blind and you're an idiot and you don't, you get to do everything that's wrong? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean that in any other relationship. It doesn't mean it in marriage. But I just want you to think about this. 
Here's how you have to think. This passage means something important. Paul mentions this idea several times, and so does Peter. And so it means something. And don't spend most of your intellectual energy thinking about this passage, trying to figure out how it doesn't mean what it says it means. Spend your time trying to figure out what it does mean and then do what it means. No husband has the right to make his wife submit to him. You husbands get that notion out of your head. You have no right to try to make your wife submit to you. That's her job to submit to you. Your job is to do something else, which if you did your job right, it might be easier for her to submit to you. How's that? It would be. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But he puts wives first here. And so when I teach about this subject in my classes, I put the wives first too. I'll respect the Holy Spirit's order of doing things here. And so I put the wives first, just like the Holy Spirit did. Some people put the husbands first. Okay. But this, he says, is fitting in the Lord. It's what is right and proper in the Lord. And so there must be, for any organization or entity to function properly, there must be the proper submission of one part to another. And the same thing is true in the home. But it's being ignored in our culture at our own peril. Children are suffering because this verse is being neglected. Many of you have suffered and are suffering because this verse is neglected. Then he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. In the book of Ephesians, he says, husbands, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. There are two things mentioned in Ephesians. The husband is to be the head of the wife and he is to love his wife. Those are two obligations, not one. The wife has the obligation to submit to her husband. He has two. So husbands, love your wives. This is agape. This is, this is the love that is, by the very definition of the word, a self-sacrificing love. The idea that you're the husband, I'm the man in the house, I can do what I want, you got to do all these things for me because I'm the boss. Come here and push the channels on the... push. Your, come here, Bertha, and push the remote so I can change channels. Hold it out there, you know, from your dial to chair. You don't, you don't know this comedy routine, but anyway. This is not... This is not a self-sacrificing love. Paul says in Ephesians that he is to love his wife even as Christ loved the church. That even as defines the love, not Hollywood love, not Harlequin romance love, but love as Christ loved the church, which was a self-sacrificing love. Everything Christ did was for the benefit of the church and his children. Everything he did. The whole thought process of everything Christ did was to be for the benefit of somebody else. And so if you're going to love your wife as Christ loved the church, as a husband, your whole thought process as the head, head of your wife is to do everything for the benefit of those in your household, whatever it may be. Now, sometimes you have to make decisions that they don't like, but it better not be just because it benefits you makes you look good or makes you happy, has to be for the benefit of the other people in their relationship because you're the head. That's what head means. It means being responsible to take care of and to protect those in your family. Husbands, love you, and don't be bitter against it. I think this refers to the fact that 
It's, it's easy for men to be bitter against women because they're women. Because they are women, they don't do things the way we think they should do them. They make decisions seemingly based on emotional, for emotional reasons or other things that don't, men don't understand as well. And it's easy to become bitter against women. They hold grudges very easily. They do things very subtly and then expect you to read their minds. There's a lot of reasons why men can become bitter against their wife. He says, you're the head, you're the husband, you don't become bitter against your wife. She is a woman, and that's on God's, that's by God's design. It's not her, it's God's design that she's different than you. She needs to be different than you. One thing, if you're married a long time, well, let's put it this way. Usually, if you're going to be married a long time, you have to come to this understanding that my wife is different than me, and it's a good thing. And the husband is different than me, and that's a good thing. If you're going to be married a long time, you have to come to understand that on a real practical level. So you become dependent upon each other and respect the other person's difference. When you're first married, you don't see this. And some people never see it because everything in their whole life is self-focused. They've been told, you be you, you do you, you do what you want. And the other person is supposed to cater to that. And that's how they live. That's how they were brought up. That's how they live their life. That's what they see on TV or in the movies. Doesn't work that way in the Bible scheme of things. So if you want to do all in the name of the Lord as a husband, then you will do this command to love your wife even as yourself and do not be bitter against your wife because she's a woman and is different than you. You need her. She's different than you. That's why you need her. So pay attention. Listen. And you can destroy your, your wife's love for you. You can destroy her desire to be in submission to you. I don't know. I haven't done, I've done dozens if not hundreds of weddings. Not hundreds, but a hundred or more weddings. And I don't remember any really, well, maybe one or two, where I had doubts that that the wife really wanted to follow her husband and be in submission. There was a couple that I wondered about that. But most all, no, no, no. They get married with the idea, I love this man. I'm going to follow him wherever he takes me. I, I'm going to follow him. We're going to be a team. I'm going to help him. He's going to help me. This, isn't that not what you think when you're a bride? Of course it is. And five years in, doesn't feel that same way anymore. Some of that is because you're still exerting your own self-will as a wife. And part of that is because your husband, because he doesn't observe and care or doesn't seem to care because he isn't observant and is not loving you the right way, he's, he's damaged your love. He's damaged your willingness to submit to him. Now, that doesn't change the command. Just because the wife will not let you love her properly doesn't mean you you get to stop loving her. And just because your, your, your husband won't treat you properly doesn't mean you have to stop submitting. See, it goes both ways. That's the problem. Once you begin to get through this a little better you, and you realize you're doing it in the name of the Lord, why do I treat... Judy the way I do. Well, hopefully in the long run, it's because I'm trying to do everything in the name of the Lord. Sometimes it's because it's what I want. Some people are easier to love than others. Well, you picked them. This is the big mystery in America. In the time this was written, you didn't get to pick your wife a lot of the time or your husband. You didn't get to pick them. And they still told, God still told them this. In America, we get to pick them. 
In fact, some of these people come to me and they tell me God told me to marry this person. And then they're complaining about him. That's a puzzler. That's a head scratcher. You picked him. Now you live with it. I don't mean that harshly. Well, a little bit. I mean it directly. Usually people, my opinion is usually people do a pretty good job of picking someone that they're compatible with. One or both, both of them can abandon that responsibility. That's true. But you can do all in the name of the Lord. And even if the whole thing fails, and people get in a situation where the marriage is failing or going to fail, I still advise them do everything in the name of the Lord. You, if you have, if that relationship has to end, let it end over your objections and your desire to do exactly the right thing. That's what how it, that's how it should end. Not what a relief I get to get out of this. We got to move on. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Now I would parallel this one to the statement in the Old Testament where God says, "Honor your father and mother," for this is the first commandment with promise that your days may be well upon the earth, long upon the earth. So it's probably a parallel to honor your father and mother in some fashion. It, the strange thing about this command is it, it may be, now, if you're a Calvinist pedo-baptist that believes in infant baptism, this makes sense to you. Or if you believe that children are born into should be baptized in their babies, maybe that makes sense, but I don't think the New Testament teaches that. So these children are not even Christians he's telling this to. You mean people that aren't Christians have to do what God says? Well, yes. They don't, but they should. So children, you should obey your parents. Now I think this is kind of a subtle way of telling his parents, you need to try to instill obedience in your children. I think this is a backwards way of telling the parents what to do here. You teach your children and make sure that they obey you. You know, the beatings will continue until the morale improves, that kind of thing. No, I don't mean that. But no, you, you need to take charge of the relationship as a parent and teach your children that obedience to parental authority and to God, and therefore to God, is important and so forth. But as a child, you have to realize that this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And you have a responsibility even when you're a child to do what's right. The idea, well, they're children, they can't do what's right. They can do what's right. They ought to do what's right. Do they? They don't. We need to move on. Fathers, do not provoke your children unless they become discouraged. This is where this is where modern society goes off the rails again. We are so off the rails, we can't even find the track anymore. Track is way off in the distance somewhere, and we're derailed. Because who is it that's supposed to take care of children in modern America? The mothers are. The government funds the mothers to take care of the children. The court system funds the mothers to take care of the children. We think it's a good idea that children should be under the care of their mothers. And there is a good point to that. I especially like that when football was on TV. It was the mother's job to take care of the children for three or four hours. You know, the only problem with all that mothers are the center of everything with children is that the Bible doesn't support that. That's the only big problem I see with that. Now, that ought to cause us to sit back and think, well, isn't it true that women are better with children? Yeah, generally women are better with children. They have an affinity for that. And so, some men is like, they don't want to touch a baby because it's something they don't want to do. You know, they're going to break this baby if they hold it. I understand all that. I've been through that. 
But there's a reason why God said, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. And in Ephesians, he says, do not provoke them. uh, In Ephesians, he says, do not provoke them to wrath. Excuse me. Here he says, do not provoke them, lest they become discouraged. Harsh treatment by the father or insensitive treatment by the father leads to two, two problems, wrath and discouragement. And I've seen both in, in families all through the years that the father is the center of the family, the one who is as the head of the family. And by his behavior, by his either harshness, callousness, anger, or, or absence, his absence, his neglect, will produce either wrath or discouragement in his children. How many children, how many of you are discouraged and somewhat angry as an adult because your father wasn't there? A whole bunch of you probably. You see how important fathers are to this problem? The world says they're not important. It's toxic. I said this at the dinner table, the breakfast table yesterday, and my kids go, oh, I Every once in a while, stupid old dad makes them think occasionally. And it's, it's rare these days. They're all grown. But I said, when I say the word masculinity, what word comes to mind immediately? And they said, toxic. This is where we are with modern liberal America. When I say the word masculine, the word toxic is what comes to mind. And by that, they mean any man that's what I would call actually a man. It isn't they mean some terrible criminal who beats his children and abuses everybody he sees. They don't mean that anymore. They mean a man who says, you know, he's a man. Likes masculine things. Doesn't believe in cross-dressing or whatever the case may be. He's toxic. Well, okay. There's a pro- only problem with that is that that's completely against the Bible teaching. I cannot do all in the name of the Lord and be that kind of man and that kind of father to my children. It's your responsibility. And you know, maybe the wife, the law, the law in the United States often sanctions the wife taking the children away from the father. The law pr- promotes that oftentimes. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes, many times they do. Even if that happens to you, fathers, listen to this verse right here. Pay attention to this verse. Even if you can't control it all because the courts won't let you, you need to be, you need to not be absent and not provoking to anger and so forth. So that's the problem with that. Now, then he says, bond servants, obey in all things your masters. And you know, the key there is this is the, the one that really gets me is the in all things part. If Paul could just say, you know, obey your masters, that's, that's okay. But he says, in all things. Because first, I start thinking of exceptions. And he, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. That means your earthly masters, not your real master in heaven. Not with eye service, just whenever they're looking at you as men pleasers. Do you have anybody like that where you work that only works with eye service whenever the boss can see or they think the boss will find out they do their work, but if the boss isn't there, they don't work. Yeah, most of you have probably been around that kind of person. He said, but you, as a men pleaser, some people just do it and say everything to get the boss happy, and they don't do anything, and they're really talking bad about him behind his back. That's not a Christian. But in sincerity of heart, fearing God, you do it from your heart. Whatever you do, there's that phrase again, and whatever you do, he says, whatever you do, do it heartily 
That means literally in Greek, from the soul. Literally in Greek, from the soul. As unto the Lord and not unto men. When you go to work tomorrow morning or this afternoon, Fred's going to be driving a truck soon here in a few hours, I'm sure, for Walmart. He's got to do that unto the Lord. Fred's driving that Walmart truck for the Lord. Hard to believe, isn't it, Fred? <laughs> He's listening to gospel sermons all the time. But, but uh, the point is, though, whatever you're doing tomorrow to go to work, you do that with all your might, with all your heart. You do that cheerfully as best you can to the best of your ability because you're working for the Lord. And if you put that into your job and into the people around it in your job, things will go a lot better for you. But you're not serving just men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward. The reward is not your paycheck next Friday. It's from the Lord from your, your inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong, even if you're a slave, and you do wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. God doesn't care that you're a slave, and that means you can do whatever you want. We do it that way. We say, this is an oppressed person, so they get to do whatever they want. It's okay if they loot and rob stores because they're oppressed. Men say that. Political parties say that. The Lord doesn't say that. Okay, that's the problem. Well, that's a big corporation. They're not going to miss if I steal this or steal that. The Lord says... That's a problem. You're a Christian, so you have to think about this. And then he says here, masters, that turns it around, masters. Well, you can't talk about masters. We're, we're in control. Oh, no. Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. When I talk about what slaves ought to do, bond servants, oh, you, you're just in support of, of masters and big business. and a big. No, no, no. The Bible says to the masters, they need to give. In fact, James talks about those who held back wages and people that reap their fields. And he says they're going to come under God's condemnation for not paying what is right and fair and withholding wages and cheating people. They think that they, they can get away with it on the earth. But if you're a master in your business or wherever you are at your job and you're in charge of somebody else, you better do what's fair and what's right because you have a master in heaven. You're, the guy next to you who's also a boss, he, don't, he may not respect the master in heaven. He may do whatever he wants. But you better do what's right because you have a master in heaven as a Christian. Now, these are strong words. Do not be, do not lie. And he go, before this, he said, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Three are reasons you become a different person. When you become a Christian, you become a different person. You put off this old person. You may have thought this way at one time. You may be tempted to go back and think like the world, but you put off that old man. You put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or all these different groups in society. The one thinks they're better than the other. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Christians have a different understanding of the nature of the world and how it works. Do you? You should. Thank you for listening today. I, I've gone over time and I, I do apologize. I don't apparently apologize enough not to do it. I'm working on that. I really am working on that. But we're going to sing this song now, number 584. Lead one verse of this song since I've gone so long, Joel. Number 584 as an invitation to you.
If you've been convicted and convinced that you've done wrong and you are living wrongly, you need to either become a Christian or repent of those sins. You, you need to become a Christian and become a new man by being baptized into Christ and putting off the old man, being buried with Him. When you're buried in baptism, it washes away. You become a new creature. You become Christ. And now you have a master in heaven and you need to live according to His will. Do all in His name. And if you're living in that life but failed, you need to come back and tell the master that you're sorry. You're going to try, you're going to try to do it better this time and repent. We'll help you with that. Come to the front. We'll pray with you. God can forgive. Or this morning, we'll take your confession of belief in Christ uh, and you can become a Christian this very hour and really serve him. Are you willing to do that? So come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.